morning, we've been walking through the book of John. We're going to be there for about 17 years at the rate that we're going. Although last week and this week I've covered, I've covered and I will cover several verses. So just to back up a little bit, because I think a runway is helpful, we're coming to the end of John's prologue. John gives this very specific introduction to his gospel. Very different from the other synoptic gospels. Well, the synoptic gospels. John's gospel is not a synoptic gospel. Synoptic meaning uh, very similar. They're very similar in their makeup, and they give a synopsis of the story of Christ and his ministry, his death, his resurrection. But John's is very different. John labors at the beginning of his at the beginning of his book of his apostle of, of his gospel to argue for the person of Jesus. So he argues for the deity of Christ, he argues for the eternality of Christ, because he understands, look, I'm going to present someone to you people, specifically here in the text, these priests and these Levites, ultimately to the Jews and then the Gentiles and to the world. So he says, I've going to present this person to you, but you have to understand that this isn't any regular type of person. This is someone that's very special. Now, John's saying this because John was a special person. John was someone who was filled with the Holy Spirit inside the womb. I don't know exactly what that means. I don't think it means the Holy Spirit dwelt in him as it did someone who is in Christ now because God sent, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit as a comforter after his ascension. But I think it was more of an anointing, more of a consecration, more of a setting apart for a great work that he was to do. What was that great work? It was to become the forerunner for Christ, to prepare the way. He is the one who Isaiah spoke of, and Isaiah, uh, uh, oh, help me out, 53, was it 53? I didn't have this in my notes. So, but thank you, yes, Isaiah 53. See, I knew I was testing you all. So Isaiah 53, uh, behold the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. That time has come. John is here. We've talked about this the last few weeks. So here we are. The priests and the Levites have been sent from the Jews to investigate the claims of this man, this madman, this strange man eating locust and wild honey, wearing camel's hair. This man who lives in the woods, these priests and these Levites are sent out to find out who this person is. And they're asking, who are you? Who are you? Are you Elijah? Are you a prophet? Who in the world are you? When they should have been saying, who is the one that you're preparing for? For whom are you rolling out this red carpet? Because someone special is coming, and we need to know who this person is. But that wasn't what their question was at the time. So the scene is still going, and you have before where he's saying, someone is coming, someone, who, someone whose sandal I'm unworthy of removing. He's going to be here, someone that's much better. And so now you have where Jesus actually enters into the scene. So here's where we pick up in the text. The next day, he saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said. After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with him. Here's the purpose, that he might be revealed to Israel. Here's why John is baptizing. If you're asking this question, here's why John is baptizing, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. Here's more testimony. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. 
I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, here's where you get the full aspect of the Trinity. You have the Holy Spirit. You have Jesus right there. Behold Jesus. Behold him. Look at him. Take him in. Understand him. Pursue him. And then he says, and the one who sent me spoke to me and said these words, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So a few things I want to point out as we just walk through this text. Now, when Jesus enters the scene, okay, and you're just going to have to trek with me here because this is how my brain works. You want to immediately go to this rich doctrinal statement that behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And believe me, we can talk about that for a while. We can talk about the atonement. We can talk about its scope. We can talk about all the mechanics and the complexities of the atonement. And it's beautiful. And we'll get to some of that. But let's back up because this is interesting to me that he says, Behold, the Lamb of God put a pause. Behold, the Lamb, the Lamb of God. Now, take yourself to a first century context. In this first century context, these people would understand, especially the Jews, especially priests, especially Levites, especially the religious elite, they would understand the prophecies of old. They would understand, maybe not fully, but they would know that Isaiah the prophet was legit and that he said certain things would come to pass. They would understand he did say that there is one who is the voice of the one crying in the wilderness saying, prepare the way of the Lord, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. They would know that that was that. Now whether, you know, they didn't all believe that John the Baptist was actually that prophecy coming to pass or being fulfilled, definitely not at first. But it's interesting when you consider the context because what are the Jews waiting for? They're waiting for some kind of delivery, but they're not waiting for a delivery from their sins necessarily. We'll get into that in a minute when we look at kind of what their belief was. But they were waiting for something. They were waiting for something. They were waiting for some kind of help to come. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God. And it's interesting that he chose to use the term the Lamb of God. If you were receiving this information and someone who's a great helper, someone who's going to come and take care of all things, if they were promising you that this is the one to come, behold the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world, why would he be referred to as a lamb in their eyes? Why not a lion? Why not someone who's the king? We think of a lion, we use that kind of anthropomorphic language. We use language to represent something or to personify something else. Why not a lion? After all, he is the lion from the tribe of Judah. A lion is superior, strong, and is a leader, right? Why not a lion? Would that not make you feel comfortable? If you were in that context, and you're like, the great, the great conqueror, the great warrior, the great hope is coming. A lamb? What does a lamb do? Why not a lion? Why not the Alpha and the Omega? Why not the first and the last, which Jesus and God are referred to throughout the Scriptures? Why not that, showing that he's before all and he is eternal? Why not that? Why not the rock, as Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, speaking of Jesus? Why not the rock? A rock is at least something that's strong and it provides a, a sure and firm foundation. Why not that? Why not use that kind of language for the one that's come to vanquish all things and to deliver them and to help them and to be the great hope and rescuer. Why not the king of kings as he's mentioned of in Revelation 17.4? Why not that? Why not the great judge? 
Why not the great judge that would come and that would free the Jews or free Israel from Roman oppression? He would come and he would judge them and he would judge them rightly and it would be swift and it would be exact and he would come and he would say, you know what, enough is enough. That's the kind of hero that they're looking for. That's what they're wanting, but that's not how John presented him. John didn't say, here comes the door, here comes the good shepherd. John didn't say, here comes the way, the truth, and the life. Here he is. He didn't say the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone. He didn't say the rock. He didn't say any of those things. He said, here's the lamb of God. You know what a lamb's only defense system is? Well, it has two defense systems. One is to herd up with the other lambs or to herd up with the other sheep. That's a defense mechanism. And I guess that's like, you know, if there's more of us, there's lesser chance that I'll be the one that's picked to be eaten. So it's a defense mechanism. But their number one defense mechanism is to run. That's what they do. That's what a lamb does. It cannot fight. It cannot take the offensive. It's completely defensive. That's what it takes, and it's defenseless. It's always on the defensive, thank you, or, and it's defenseless. It can't protect itself. It can't take care of itself. But the lamb is the language that John chose to use, but it's not arbitrary. He didn't say this because, oh, I'm just shooting from the hip here. This is just what sounded good to me at the time. This is by divine appointment that John would use this specific language. So despite the lamb's role and reality in the first century context, and again, we have to consider the context that they would see, lamb? I'm sure they knew some shepherds. They knew what it was to be a shepherd. They knew the defensive tactics and the habits of sheep. John still insists on this specific personification. He says, this mighty warrior, this mighty king, he's a lamb. He's a lamb. And he's not pulling this language out of thin air. So what I want to do is I want to show you the beauty and the intentionality of the Bible as it's leading up to this point. Showing how God has very intentionally, meticulously, how he has worked with words all throughout the Old Testament as the scribes have recorded these things, as they're recording the grand narrative all the way up to this point and a little bit past. I want you to follow with me on this. You don't have to turn to these passages. You can make note of them if you want, but it's really fantastic. Do you know that there's a theme of lambs throughout the Bible? There's a theme. It's, it's a very strong, very key theme that you see all throughout the text. And if you look at them in isolation, you might miss the point, but when you put them all together, it becomes very obvious what God is doing as he's pulling back that curtain to show you more of himself at the end of all things. If you think back to Genesis chapter 1, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Let me just read those to you, okay? Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Cain's the firstborn. And she said, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had, listen, regard for Abel's offering. He didn't have regard for Cain's offering. Cain didn't bring of his first fruits. He didn't bring of his best. Abel brought of his best. You know what his best was? A lamb. A lamb that was offered up as a sacrifice. And God said he had regard on that. 
You fast forward just a little bit, Genesis 22, 7 through 9, a familiar passage. What do we see? We see Abraham taking his son Isaac, the son of promise. You know, he waited 25-something years for this promise to be fulfilled. He had a little lapse in the middle of that to which he went into, went into uh, Hagar and they had a child and God says, that's not the son I was promising you. That's not the means by which I was going to bring about the son of promise. So God opened up Sarah's womb and they had Isaac, the son of promise. And Isaac is young. And then God instructs Abraham to do something very difficult. He says, I want you to take your son and I want you to sacrifice him to me. And so here's the context, or here's the text. My father, he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. You fast forward a little bit more, you have the Passover. We understand what happens here. You have the plagues that have been going on in Egypt as God is pouring out his divine wrath unto Pharaoh and all of those in Egypt. So you have this taking place, and then God, just before the final plague comes, God says, I'm going to do something for you, Israel. And if you just look at this in isolation and you don't see these other things happening in the Bible, it just seems like an isolated moment, and it doesn't stand out as much. But what you're going to see is the fact that God is again pulling back this curtain as things are being drawn together. But what he tells Israel is he says, I want you to take a lamb on this night... And I want you to kill it. Now it has to be a very specific lamb. It has to be a lamb without blemish. It has to be a lamb without spot. Israel had no clue what this is foreshadowing. They didn't know. But God knew that thousands of years later, guess who would be holding the scriptures in their hands on a Sunday morning like today, celebrating the fact that God is so sovereign and so intentional and so beautiful that He's bringing things in, He's bringing these things to the forefront of our mind just to exalt Christ and just to bring Himself glory. So there's this fantastic thing happening. And so He says to the children of Israel, He says, I want you to take the blood of the Lamb that's without blemish, without spot. I want you to kill it. I want you to take its blood and I want you to wipe it on the lintel and on the doorpost. And when I see the blood of the Lamb... I will pass over, and destruction will not befall the children of Israel. Is it not just painfully obvious what God is doing? Sometimes I think we take for granted hindsight. Imagine the person who comes to the Scriptures, and I wish that I could do this. I wish that sometimes I could approach the text not knowing a thing, not knowing any, not having read the Bible however many times I've read it, not knowing anything, sometimes just, just for it to hit me in the face again for the first time, to come to the Scriptures and say, this is what He's doing. Oh my goodness, He's putting these things together. God is revealing Himself little by little until finally He hilted it right in front of your face. You fast forward a little bit more, you get Isaiah's Messianic prophecy in Isaiah 53, verse 7 specifically. It says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a what? Lamb. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter. What's interesting is Jesus is a lamb. But don't forget that he's also the lion from the tribe of Judah. Jesus made it very clear that if he wanted to, he could call a host or a legion of angels to come and do whatever he wanted, to fight on his behalf as if he needed someone to fight on his behalf. But he's just speaking towards the magnificence of his sovereignty and power, and yet he remains silent. 
Like a sheep before its shearers, he remained silent, and he opened not his mouth. You see, this title, Lamb of God, this title designation was significant because the world needed their sins to be forgiven, but such forgiveness would not come without a sacrifice to satisfy God's wrath and meet the demands of justice. There had to be a perfect sacrifice. There had to be. The world did not need a sword. It needed a sacrifice. You understand this? What the Jews wanted and were waiting on is not what they needed. They didn't need the sword. They needed a sacrifice. They didn't need the warrior. They didn't need the king. They didn't need the stone in that sense. They didn't need the lion. They needed the lamb. They needed the sacrifice. And only the lamb could take away the sins of the world. And so I think this is the question that we should be asking. Last week we looked at the questions that the Levites and the priests were asking. Who are you, John? Who are you? We said the question they should be asking is, who do you represent? Of whom do you speak? Of whom are you reading out? Or for whom are you rolling out this red carpet and making much ado about? I think the question we should ask here is we see that Jesus takes away the sins of the world, but how does Jesus take away the sins of the world? Do you ever take that for granted, that he just takes the sins of the world? Do you ever think of the mechanics of that? Because I promise you, if you think on that often, you think of the mechanics of Jesus taking away the sins of the world, if you think that way and think that way often, what it does is it propels you to a deeper place of worship. Because we can sing about the cross, a child who follows Jesus, a child who is legitimately in Christ, doesn't know the mechanics of the cross, know that Jesus died, know that Jesus rose again, but can they explain to you what it was for Jesus to endure the un bridled, relentless wrath of God, can they understand that? You and I can't understand it. So I know a child can't begin to scratch the surface, but they can worship. But as we get older, and as we grow in our maturity as followers of Christ, because that's the plan, Jesus instructed his disciples, he says, I want you to go out into the world, I want you to make disciples, I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he said what? Teach them. All that I have taught you, all that I have commanded you. So you have making disciples and you have maturing disciples. In Paul's letters, he speaks to these churches and he talks about them growing up into spiritual adulthood, for them to mature in their faith, to get off of milk and to move on to me. So this is expectation of us or from us to grow in our faith for God's glory, but to grow in our faith so that your worship is deeper, that your worship is broader, that your worship is more intentional, that it's more thoughtful than what it otherwise might be. So the question should be, how does Jesus take away the sins of the world? So let me walk through the mechanics of what's happening. Because as Mark talked about, the gospel is not something we reflect on at Christmas and Easter. Okay, so... so one of the things I want Haven Ridge to be known for, a part, of, a part of our vision, is that we're not a people that seems to really celebrate Jesus on these two occasions throughout the year. But we celebrate Jesus because the gospel is relevant every day. We don't celebrate something that was long since passed as if it's not alive today, as if it's not efficacious for us today. We don't do that. We celebrate it every single day. So here's the components of the mechanics of the gospel. This is everything that 
I want to challenge you to consider. I'm going to, these are so much, these are so much deeper than what I'm going to explain, but for time's sake, I'm going to kind of peruse over them. So here's a few questions that I've written down that I want to communicate to you. I think you have to ask yourself, okay, who is the centerpiece of the gospel? Who does it all revolve around? What component do you remove and you get no gospel? Jesus. So you have to ask yourself, who is Jesus? Who is the centerpiece of the gospel? Well, that is Jesus Christ. John has labored to show us exactly who Jesus is. He argues for his deity. He argues for his eternality. He says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So John has introduced to us the person of Jesus and made clear argument as to why Jesus is the centerpiece of the gospel. He's fully God. He's fully man. He's perfect. He's the spotless lamb. He's the lamb of God. Therefore, the only candidate who could atone for your sins. He's it. If you don't like the fact that Jesus was the one and you wanted a woman or you wanted somebody else, you're out of luck. Because Jesus is who God determined would be the one to rescue us from our sins. He's the only candidate. So what did Jesus do? Well, he, did, he met the demands of perfection placed on humanity by himself. We understand that Jesus died on the cross. I say to you, hey, what did Jesus do for you? Well, he died for my sins. Yes, he did, absolutely. Let's investigate that a little bit. He died for your sins. So what exactly happened? How did that transaction take a take place or even have effect he met the demands of perfection understand that God's demand for you is that you are holy God's demand for you is that you're perfect and if you're like me you're sitting here thinking well especially if you're not in Christ you're saying I can't I can't be perfect absolutely and that's the point by the way God's not going to minimize who he is just so that you can somehow in your humanity make the cut God's not going to change his nature so that you can somehow slip in on your own merit or your own effort. This is not the way it goes. God says, I am perfect, I am holy, I am pure, and I have a standard. The standard will not be shaken. It will not change because I do not change. If his standard changes, God changes. And if he changes, he ceases to be God. Then you've got major, major theological, practical, life-altering problems. Jesus says, I'm not going to change, or God says, I'm not going to change. You have to be perfect. You have to do everything right, always. Kind of a big problem for us since we've inherited this sin nature. We've inherited guilt before we ever speak a word. That's, that's the depth and the level and the effect of sin when it happened in Genesis 3. That's how bad it is. I know it doesn't set well with you emotionally. It shouldn't. Sin is devastating, devastating. So devastating that we're born guilty and separated from God. That is the devastation of sin. But doesn't that just highlight the beauty of grace? And that you were so destitute and so devastated by sin that you could not and did not want to be rescued from darkness. But God, being rich in mercy and because of his loving kindness, made us alive together in Christ Jesus. So what did Jesus do? He met the demands of perfection placed on humanity by God himself. So what did he become in order that we might become free? What did Jesus become? What else happened on the cross? What was going on there? Well, he became sin, the scripture tells us. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. We sang it in Jesus Messiah. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him, Jesus, the active agent, Jesus' work performs the action. We are the passive agent. He adds righteousness to our account. 
So what did Jesus become? He became sin. Not a sinner. He became sin. He became sin. Why else do you think God forsook His Son? He had to. The same nature that is God's, that we see in Isaiah 59.2, which says, your sins have made a separation between you and God, and they have caused Him to hide His face from you so that He will not hear. That's the devastation of sin. And Jesus, not becoming a sin, but becoming a sinner, took on sin. And therefore, by nature and by necessity, God forsook the Son. So what did He endure to meet the demands of God's righteous justice? What did He endure? The Scripture teaches us that it pleased the Father to crush the Son. And that messianic prophecy from Isaiah 53, it pleased the Father to crush the Son. These are not easy words. But you back up and you take more of a panoramic view of what's happening here and you see that the only hope for man was in Christ. And God exists for His glory and He deserves His glory and He wants to save men and women for His glory. He wants to rescue them and bring them out of the domain of darkness and bring them into the kingdom of His beloved Son. But in order to do that, justice had to be served. A debt had to be paid. We don't stand before God with debts. We don't stand before God with no justice having been done. That doesn't happen that way. If that happens, you can throw out the fact that God is called a judge. Because if He's not a good judge, He ceases to be a judge at all. Because God is the standard for what judgment is and what a judge is. But it was there on the cross that Jesus appeased the wrath of God. God poured out His wrath. His absolute, infinite and pure hatred for sin. I mean, there are a few things in my life that I can say I really, I've really hated something. There may have been a time in my life where I actually hated someone. And I felt it to my bones. I mean, if I think of hatred, that's what I think. I, I've been mad at a lot of things. I've had a lot of people mad at me. I would, I would hope that I don't have many people say, I really hate Alan. I really hate him. You know? I don't, I don't think there's anyone in my life right now that I can say, I hate that person. And it would be hard to find things that I can say, I really hate. Of course, I hate my sin. I hate all those things. Yes. Not as much as I should, unfortunately. But you understand when you... Man, when you're angry, and it's, it's tiptoeing on that precipice of hate, that edge, right? The edge, precipice, edge. So when it's tiptoeing, right, you feel it. And then if you go over that edge, it just goes to full-born hatred and emotion. Now, take that. Take your limited experience there as a finite being and apply that to an infinite being who is perfect, you see, you have no business hating anything other than sin. You can't hate someone because you're not better than that person. Wasn't it, didn't I share with you a few weeks ago that it was, I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said, if anyone ever says something hateful or hurtful against you, do not get mad at that person because you're far more wicked than they presume you to be. So where do we have this right? God has the right. And God has an infinite and absolute 
pure hatred for sin, and he dispensed that on Jesus. So the question now is, what do we gain from his loss? What do we get out of this deal? What do we get uh, out of what Christ gave? What do we gain from his loss? We get his righteousness added to us. You see, we're going through these questions. If we stand here and we sing, Oh, the wonderful cross, and all we think about is a piece of wood and a man hanging on there, can we worship? Absolutely. But it kind of changes the game a little bit when we start thinking through these implications, when we start thinking through justice and we think through God's wrath and we think through God's perfections and we think of all these things regarding God's nature and human nature and our brokenness and our rebellion. We think of all these things and that Jesus, when he died on the cross and he endured the punishment of the sins of those who would believe, he didn't just suffer God's wrath for one of your sins, but every single person who follows Christ, every single person who trusts Christ, this is straight out of John 3.16, Jesus suffered and God poured out his wrath and says, I will dispense my justice on you, Jesus. When we start thinking about that, it takes us to a different level of worship. So what do we get? What do we gain from his loss? We gain the imputed righteousness of Christ. He added righteousness to our bankrupt account. If you have zero dollars in your account and I give you a million dollars, I have imputed money to your account that you didn't earn, you didn't deserve. I didn't owe you that. I just added it to your account. Wouldn't we all love that? On an infinite and eternal scale, this is what Jesus has done at the cross. And so that when we stand before God, we've not only gained his righteousness, but we've gained justification. We've gained a legal standing that is right before God. Justification is a legal term. And what God does in bearing our sins and what, God, and what Jesus does in taking on the sins of all who would believe, he presents us to the Father. And he says, I declare them righteous. I declare them right and it's a legal transaction that is eternally binding because Jesus paid the debt. I walk into heaven debt-free. I walk into heaven with the righteousness of Jesus covering me. That's what we gain from his loss. And so finally, the question is, what was the full scope of his sacrifice? The full scope of his sacrifice, it says this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world in Genesis 4 we talked about Abel's sacrifice and how that sacrifice was enough to atone be acceptable for one man Abel we look at Exodus 12 we look at Israel and it was enough to cover a household when they put the blood on the lintel and on the doorpost it was enough to cover a household and then we look at Leviticus 16. You study the Day of Atonement and you see when the priest would make these sacrifices, it would cover and atone for the nation. And then Jesus enters the scene and John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins, not of a nation, not of an individual, not of a household, but of the entire world. 
Men from every nation, men from every tongue, men from every tribe, every single place on earth to the darkest and deepest recesses of the world. There's no place that His atonement cannot reach. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but would have life, have abundant life, everlasting life. The gospel is sufficient for all. But it will only affect those who trust and follow Jesus. If the gospel's right here and you have people that are lost, if they die, they die separated. But if they say, but I was in close proximity, it doesn't do for them. The Bible says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. John wants so badly for them to understand that Jesus is better, that he's other, that he's distinct, and that he's able to do all the Father has sent him to do. John wants them to understand this. Listen, listen to what he says. He continues, God, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Don't be confused by this. All right, give me a few more minutes. Don't be confused by this. He's saying there's a man who ranks before me because he was before me. John is tipping his hat to the eternal pre-existent Son of God. He's just reaffirming or restating what he's already said. He's already shown them he existed in the beginning. He was the Word of God. He was with God. So he existed from eternity past. He's tipping his hat. He's revisiting that just to let them know. Here it is, a new day. The next day, he's like, let me remind you, the person that's coming, not only... Is he better than me? But I want to remind you that he's the God-man. He's from eternity. And then he moves on. He says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. The end of John's prologue leaves us with a picture of the gospel through baptism. Because after this we get into talking about the disciples and these types of people. But here's the end of John's prologue, and he ends it with this picture. This picture of the gospel, this picture of death, this picture of burial being put in the ground, and this picture of resurrection. There's nothing in this context to suggest that baptism of the Holy Spirit has anything to do with the endowments of supernatural giftings. That's another conversation for another time. But in this specific context, he's talking about the cleansing power of the Holy Spirit through the gospel. It fits the context of what his message was. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. This is your hope. This is the warrior. This is the stone. This is the one that you've been waiting for. This is the one who will vanquish your true enemy. And by the way, it wasn't Rome. He says, I'm baptizing so that you might know him. He's going through this practice so that they can have a visual. I don't know if you are visual learners. It helps me. He's giving them a visual so they can understand that there's death, but there can be life. He's showing them these things. John was using baptism to picture or to image the work Jesus would do in bringing people out of death and into life through the death and resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection is the final link in the gospel's chain. Has to be there. It has to be there. In fact, at the top of your 
most favorite phrases list should be these four words. He is not here. That should be one of your favorite passages in Scripture. He is not here. Do you understand the implications? If he, if, if, if he was there, right? If Mary showed up and he was there, we've got a problem. All the things he promised, you destroy this temple, I will raise it up in three days, doesn't happen, big problem. Resurrection was essential to the gospel. The gospel essential to salvation. So if Mary would have found his body in the tomb, the day everything, that day everything would have been in vain because everything hinges on this. If Jesus was still in the tomb, it would mean that there is no escaping the condemnation of our sin or God's holy indignation that burns against us waiting to be released for an eternity of justice. But he was not there. We believe in the resurrection because God's word tells us it's true and God's, words is, God's word is self-attesting. We believe in the resurrection of Jesus because of the numerous eyewitness accounts. We believe in the resurrection because what kind of fool would die for a man that made the claims Jesus did but didn't or couldn't conquer the grave? The disciples still follow Jesus. In fact, they died for Jesus. They died for the sake of the gospel. What fool would do that for something that wasn't a reality? And I don't say fool in some trivial or trite way or making sport or fun of anybody. But someone who would go on a kamikaze mission, a suicide mission in the name of Allah, that is a fool. That is a fool because they don't have truth and they're buying in and giving their life to something that is false. And that will inevitably lead them to destruction. That is foolish. Without the resurrection, the good news is just news. John's message was so offensive because it dared to suggest that the religious elite needed someone outside of themselves in order to be righteous before God. And here's my final application. Those waiting for a Messiah were expecting a warrior, a conquering hero, to ride in and squash the enemy, to put the definitive nail in their coffin. But think about it. From what would the Jews, especially the Judaizers, especially the religious elite, what would they have thought they needed rescuing from? They thought they were good with God. They kept the law. They thought they were good. So what would they think they needed? When Jesus came in on the triumphal entry, which a lot of people are preaching about today, and they have the palm branches and they're singing, Hosanna, Hosanna. Many, if not most of them, were celebrating because they thought they were finally going to be free from Roman oppression. It wasn't so much Jesus who takes away the sins of the world. It was finally we can get out from under the hand of the Romans. Jesus didn't come to free them from Rome. The Jewish nation aren't the only ones who have identified the wrong enemy. Your enemy, church, is not a man who subjects himself to the teachings of Muhammad. Do you understand this? This is not your enemy. I sent in the company of men that I'm close to, not here, but other places, who want to talk so much about our nation and want to talk so much about Islamic influence in the nation. And there's conversations to be said about that. But to write things off and say, you know what? They're unsavable. And to say, that's our enemy, this person 
who says, I subscribe to Muhammad. I read the Quran. That's not your enemy. You understand this? This is not your enemy. Your enemy is not a stranger, a friend, or a family member that is practicing homosexuality. That's not your enemy. But that's what we hear. We make it our enemy in Christian circles. Oh, this is this. I can't believe it. You know, your enemy is not the president of the United States, whether Democrat or Republican. He's not your enemy. How do I know this? These are byproducts of the work of the enemy. Just like your gossip is a byproduct of the work of the enemy. You're not the enemy. I'm not the enemy. Just like the lust of your flesh is a byproduct of the work of the enemy. Your pride, your murderous heart are all byproducts of the work of the enemy. But you are not the enemy. Your neighbor is not the enemy. Paul tells us who our enemy is. First, he tells us who our enemy is not. He says, for we do not wrestle with flesh and blood. That takes out man. But against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is a very real, powerful, spiritual realm. And this is who Paul addresses. When he says rulers and authorities, he's speaking of those in that realm. He's not speaking of presidents and dictators and powerful figures in history. He's not talking about that. He's saying there is something that is beyond flesh and blood that is at work. Our enemy is the enemy of God. The prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this world. And we are in the wake of his work all the time. And our lives often are the byproduct of his advancements in our life. And we need the gospel every day to represent Jesus rather than being a representative of the world we live in. The gospel wasn't just given for a one-time application to bring us out of death and into life, but so that your life might be characterized by the continual application of Christ's death and resurrection in your life. The gospel is the necessary, it's the critical component that must be implemented every day in order to stand against the flaming arrows of the enemy. Apply the gospel. Believe the gospel. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ every day. Say to yourself, I'm tempted to do this. But I'm a child of God. Why is Jesus better? What are my promises based on my relationship with God the Father? And will I cling to those or will I go after things that will leave me unsatisfied? The world needed a sacrifice. So God sent a lamb. Behold the lamb who took away your sin and my sin and the sins of all who would ever call on him. Thank you, Lord, for grace. Thank you, Lord, for peace. Thank you, Lord, for the saving work of Jesus as atoning sacrifice. We're going to pray. And after we pray, this won't take us long. After we pray, Austin's going to come up and he's going to briefly lead us. And this will be the way that we conclude today. He's going to lead us in uh, observing the Lord's Supper. And I'll let him talk through all of those things. I'll let him talk to you about self-examination and all of that. But let's pray and begin preparing our hearts to partake in the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Father, 